afternoon, everyone. It's great to be here. Uh, it's my second time at the Weekend University. Last time I've given a talk on your sense of emotional intelligence. Uh, raise your hands if you've been here last time when I've given a talk. Okay, brilliant, brilliant, quite a few. So the ones who attended my talks in the past know that I have this really bad habit. I really quite like to start my talks with a physical warm-up. Um, so if you really, really don't want to do it, you know, don't feel forced to do it. I don't want you to bully you into it. But um, I don't know, it has been mentioned today in the morning session about what exercise does to your brain. No, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll touch on it at the end if, you, if any of you want to know. But um, so we're doing this exercise, so we all freshen up and our stress levels get reduced and the blood vessels in the brain dilate, allowing you to learn this information much, much better. Okay, so this is my excuse for doing this really, really ridiculous warm up which is about to follow. So I'll ask you all to stand up. And we are going to do this, it's, it's, it's silly, it's like, it's like a Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts type of thing, you know, when I sing the line and do the action, and you do the same, repeating after. And you know, you just try to, to like, just forget that you're proper grown-up with the serious responsibilities, and just have a little bit of fun, do something silly, and, and you know, me forcing you to do that is an excuse for that, okay? So we all came here to learn about brain. It's all right. It's all right. It's okay. It's okay. We're walking, walking. Run a little bit. Run faster. Run even faster. Run with knees up high. Run kicking your own bottom. Jump up high. Squat down low. Shake your shoulders. Shake your booty, handshake one neighbor, and give a big, big hug to another neighbor, the neighbor you like most. And grab a seat. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining so actively. <laughs> if I see that you guys are getting too sleepy, we'll do it once again during the talk. So I asked for... For some people who, who were here in the room already earlier, uh, I asked to chat to strangers about what would they like to get out of this talk. So would anybody like just to shout out what would be the most useful thing if I covered today? Anyone? Yeah? Any ideas? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. What is productivity? What is productivity? Okay, yeah, we can cover that. Productivity, what, what does it actually mean? Yes. Anything else? Avoiding Sorry? Avoiding burnout. Av avoiding burnout. Raise your hands if you feel like you do too many things and you really, really struggle to switch off, even when you have time off. Uh, we, we'll cover that to some extent. Anything else? Raise your hands if you, if you have so-called constructive procrastination. When like, what constructive procrastination means like, imagine you have a deadline. Oh, I, I did actually that. I was quite proficient for a year with procrastination. I was brilliant. I had to write my PhD thesis. And my business, my coaching business was thriving at that time. It was amazing because I got everything done other than writing my PhD thesis. 
So we'll discuss about procrastination. So basically today during the talk, we'll start at actually discussing what is needed for our brains to function best, what kind of areas are responsible for different, different ways of thinking, different ways of getting things done. Then I can touch a little bit on what actually productivity means. Then we'll discuss of why sometimes we're so drawn to multitask. And is that a good idea from the brain perspective? Yeah, I can see people shaking their heads. But most importantly, how to deal with that. If, you're, if you really find yourself multitasking all the time, but you no longer know how to stop it. And I'll give you some pragmatic tips of actually how, how to train your brain to be so-called single focus again. Then also we'll discuss about different kinds of attention. And um, I give you, some, some, you know, we'll, some practices of how can we actually stop thinking if, we, if you have a tendency to overthink and struggle to switch off. What, is, what shall we do? What kind of attention system do we need, do we need to train? Then we'll take a, a 10 minutes break, halfway through. And in the second part, we'll discuss what's needed for us to remember things well. So we, we're kind of covering different aspects of productivity here. One is actually being able to rationally, cognitively perform well. Second is actually managing your attention and getting things done. Thirdly, being able to switch on and switch off from the task, then being able to remember things and actually why our memory gets, gets worse over time. And last but not least, making sure that you do the highest priority thing that you need to get done or procrastination. In procrastination part, uh, I'll, cover about, I'll cover different kinds of procrastinators because we tend to procrastinate for very different reasons and most of those reasons are really, really valid. And we'll discuss how we could meet those needs in a better way. And at the end, I'll, I'll leave quite a lot of time for, for questions. So if during the talk you have some questions, feel free, it's best to write them down. So at the end, I'll, I'll start taking all the questions. I will not be taking questions during the talk, uh, but if there is something really, really getting in the way for you following the talk further, feel free to raise your hand and I'll kind of explain very briefly if needed, something if it gets in the way for you to, to understand further material. So first of all, this is the human brain. This is how human brain looks like. And that's the organ where all of your personality traits are. That's the part of your body which actually holds your dreams, your fears, your, uh, your ability to do things, your memories. And if something happens to the brain, the functions that that part of the brain was responsible for are impaired. We can no longer do those things. So brain is, in that sense, a very, very physical organ. And we somehow tend to think about the body in a very physical way, like if you injure your leg, you can't run. But the brain is very, very similar. Uh, on the right-hand side, you see the brain, uh, which is no longer alive, unfortunately, has been taken out of the dead person and put in so-called fixative, so it preserves the structure, so it doesn't get mush. However, this brain is still alive. It's during the brain surgery, you can see it's really, really healthy, thriving brain. It has a very rich connection of blood vessels and the health of your blood vessels determine the health of these brain areas. So if something happens for, for uh, blood vessels, so for example if they get inflamed, now there is a big, uh, big kind of um, research uh, funding got to actually investigate the um, inflammation in the brain 
And in fact, it's blood vessels that get inflamed and how that affects the performance because there is big links between brain inflammation and depression, for example, and, and schizophrenia as well. Um, or also in some cases, if people have ischemic stroke, that affects the blood supply to particular areas. And those areas, unfortunately, start, start to die off. Brain consists of many, many different parts, and those parts are responsible for different functions. Uh, by the way, those slides, uh, Niall either has already sent you or he will send you the slides, so you don't necessarily need to take everything, take all the notes. And those parts we can actually group into three major classes based on the functions uh, they're responsible for and also based on when they evolved in terms of evolution. The oldest parts of the brain, uh, which are just kind of ex extension of the, extension of the uh, spine, we can group into the lizard brain. Um, a bit more evolved, um, we, we, we call the mammalian brain complex, and the most complex, the whole wrinkly bit on the outside, we call neocortex or the human brain. So those three kind of groups of the different parts of the brain, they, they are responsible for different functions and also they need different amounts of energy to do their tasks. And brain is really picky how it actually uses the energy. So first of all, lizard brain structures such as brainstem enable us to stay alive. They control our breathing, our digestive system, and our heartbeat. And if there was something to happen to the lizard brain, you, you, you're quite likely to compromise those vital, fu vital functions. And that's why, unfortunately, when people, you know, when, when some young people get really brave and jump headfirst from the bridge into the river, unfortunately, that's not a very smart decision, full stop, because uh, that's, they're very likely to damage the lizard brain and the consequences could be, could be lethal. Also, the crucial centers of our consciousness are in the lizard brain as well. Mammal brain, or also called limbic system, as the name implies, other animals, other mammals, have those structures as well, very in a very similar way. They function, they're responsible for similar functions, and they function in a very similar manner. That's why a lot of those functions are actually investigated in, in, in other mammals than humans. Uh, some of it in humans as well, if possible. So mammal, mammal brain's task is to keep you safe. And kind of mammal brain, if, it's best to think about mammal brain as kind of if you were an animal, what would make you safe? So if you were doing certain habits and they enabled you to stay alive, mammal brain thinks that if you just keep on doing that, you're okay, you'll be fine. So it makes assumption that the world is not changing. It makes assumption that actually if those things worked out in the past, I need to stick to them. And also it makes another assumption. If this particular action hurt me in the past, I'm very likely to get hurt again if I do it again. So it actually keeps us stuck sometimes to the past traumas. And this is very, very, very pronounced in relationships, for example. If you've been really badly hurt by somebody, your mammal brain will really remember that and will try to keep you away from people of that kind or from relationships altogether. So, so mammal brain keeps, stores all the positive and all the negative information and kind of stares us towards you know, where there is no pain or where, where, where things actually worked out in the past. One of the crucial mammal brain structures responsible for emotions is called amygdala. Amygdala is the part of us which is constantly keeping track. Is there any danger in the environment and alerting you if so? 
Mammal brain enables us to love, to love other people, to love our children, um, to, to have you know, positive emotions to, to, to other people, especially if people are nice to us, and, and, and to form connection and bond. Um, other structures of mammal brain, such as hippocampus and basal ganglia, are responsible for memory and remembering what things worked out in the past. Because if we want to ensure the safety, we need to keep track what was the outcome of previous events. And, and, and you know, it's responsible for habits using that information from the memory systems. There is one limitation to the mammal brain. Mammal brain is designed to keep you and your offspring safe. It's not designed to understand other people. It's not designed to truly, truly care about the bigger goals. So mammal brain is mainly caring about your own survival. In that sense, mammal brain is selfish, but from a biological point of view, selfish is good because you need to survive first in order to be able to get to the next level. And the next level is the human brain, on your cortex. I know it's a bit confusing, human brain within the human brain, but uh, so let's, I, I prefer to call it neocortex to avoid that confusion. So neocortex is the only part of your brain which is willing to learn, which is willing to, to change, which can consider scenarios you have never encountered. Neocortex is, is, is the part of the brain which enables rational thinking and rationalizing and modeling abstract thought in your brain. Uh, neocortex enables us to learn new information and to keep on learning throughout the life. Uh, also, neocortex is crucial for sound, rational decisions. And also, in fact, neocortex is connected to the amygdala in the mammal brain. So when we make decisions, neocortex can take into account the emotions as well. And, and we can actually, with our rational thinking, to some extent, suppress our emotions because those areas are connected with each other. Neocortex is the only part of your brain which enables you to truly understand another person, especially if this other person is going through the things you, you haven't encountered yourself. So if, if somebody comes to you and says, like, I'm really, really struggling with uh, being, got, getting late to work, or I'm really struggling with depression, if you haven't encountered those situations, or if you're currently not depressed, you might, with mammal brain, you might really struggle to understand how this person is feeling and what this person needs. But your neocortex would enable you to have so-called theory of mind, would enable you to say, okay, I feel really brilliant now, but this person is depressed. What would the person who is depressed need me to do right now? So enable you to kind of think about other people's needs in a much more profound way than mammal brain would ever allow. And, and also uh, creativity, such a kind of elusive concept in my, a, a, a little bit, but it's also born in neocortex, connecting random information with each other and making really unique, valuable, valuable insights from it. Those three different centers of the brain, they consume different amounts of energy because as you see in uh, neocortex, is doing really, really complex tasks. So they require really, really large brain networks and enormous amount of cells called neurons to, to, to deal with the task. While lizard brain is, it's not simple what it does, it's really complex, but in comparison to the neocortex, it's really does quite basic tasks. And it requires only, you know, um, a sm small fraction of, of the neural ne neuronal networks to, to ensure those tasks. So if I was to choose the vehicle metaphor for the different brain areas, lizard brain is like a small Vespa 
like you know those annoying Vespas, which is always active and doesn't need much fuel. But you can keep on going with it. It's not really powerful. It's not, it's not you know, kind of, you, you, you can't go 100 miles per hour with it, but you can keep on going for a long time on the same amount of fuel. So brain always makes sure that it has energy for lizard brain. In fact, um, there is some, some, some really quite um, gruesome facts that in the labor camps, when people were really, really starved to the most extreme, um, the brain started actually using the neocortex because it's a fatty tissue in order to feed the, the, the lizard brain for us to stay alive. It's, it's quite gruesome, isn't it? So I wouldn't go too much into it. So in fact, you know, it's a it, our bodies take biggest, it take, takes all the, all everything, it does everything needed to make sure the lizard brain has enough energy. Mammal brain is more expensive than the lizard brain, so it's a bit like Audi TT. Well, actually, I should up update the picture we got now, BMW. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> we have Porsche, no. <laughs> uh, so mammal brain is active most of the time to ensure that we can be on autopilot and we can get things done throughout the day. So if you're going to work, if you're taking exactly the same route to work, mammal brain ensures that you don't even need to think about it. Right? So that's why sometimes when we do the same things, the same routines, we even like, oh, how did I get here, right? Like, because it's so automatic. And uh, when we do our like, kind of the same habits, mammal brain just does it automatically. So it's not even decision anymore. It becomes like a shortcut to our mental processes. And that's, that's why, you know, um, those, uh, creating really good habits is essential because it's really, really hard to change them once they are already, um, once they are already engraved. Um, and, and mammal brain needs much more energy than the lizard brain, but nothing to compare to what actually neocortex needs. So neocortex in that metaphor is like a plane. It uses enormous amounts of energy. And we use that, you know, to do all these elaborate functions like make rational decisions, have abstract thought, understanding other people, controlling our own emotions. So these are really quite a fancy qualities of the brain. And animals cannot do those things in the same manner as we can. So it's really, really expensive for the brain. So we can only actually use that sporadically. So with neocortex needs to be on for a while to do certain tasks and it needs time to recover, it needs time to rest. And that's why when we want to actually perform tasks well, we need to prioritize rest time as well as performance time. So we need to be picky what we're using our neocortex to. And there isn't easy way to estimate how long we can use our neocortex. It's a little bit dependent on what task you're doing, how proficient you are at the task and personality traits and, and so on and so forth. But my kind of rough educated guess that we can use neocortex between four to six hours a day effectively. So that's not very much, is it? It's if you think if you have only four hours to really be very smart at, the, at your best capability, so, so, so that, that's not very much. So we have to be really, really picky what we use that time for. Um, and, and neocortex has, has, again, you know, multiple, multiple functions to do in addition to rational thought. Right now, watching this talk and watching Vince's talk earlier, you're using your neocortex to a high extent. And that's why, you know, after, after 45 minutes, we need to take a break. Because right now, 
to look to just view the slides and analyze what's presented in the slides, you're using the area at the back called occipital lobes, that's also part of neocortex, to analyze visual information. You're using uh, parietal lobes just there, up there, in order to read what's written on the slides and to feel the temperature of the room. You're using somatosensory cortex. For, 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 to write the notes, or for me to walk around and to speak, I'm using the motor cortex within the frontal lobes. And, and for you to, to understand what, to hear and understand what I'm saying, you're using temporal lobes on the side. So even, you know, in addition to all those rational and profound tasks, neocortex has to do all these to process new information. It would be different if you already heard that information before, because mammal brain can take, take part of it um, in charge. Uh, and the smartest part of the, of the neocortex is called prefrontal cortex, and that's, that's the area of your brain which does all those executive functions, as we call. So reasoning, planning your day, prioritizing, writing to-do lists, deciding on which tasks to do actually from that to-do list, solving whatever problems come in your way. So for example, I, I give you a story about problem solving. I took a train this morning from Sheffield to London. I arrived to the station in, in, in Sheffield and I realized that my train is delayed. But I had to take a train from Sheffield to Doncaster and change in Doncaster and there was only nine minutes time. So my neocortex actually had to work really, really hard to troubleshoot because the train was delayed by 10 minutes. So there was no way I could make it. So I had to quickly analyze what are the other, other, other trains would any of them take me to Doncaster and have to make, you know, plan how to get to that platform rush through, push, push past, past people, and, and actually get there. And luckily I made it. So if, we, if, if I wasn't able, if I was really stressed out, or even if I was depressed actually, which most of us can, can get in depressed-like state, prefrontal cortex wouldn't be working as well. So I wouldn't be able to think that sharply. So probably I would have you know, missed, missed my um, second train as a result. So, like, so prefrontal cortex enables us to really be like sharp on the spot and analyze and make, make some decisions on the spot. Also, prefrontal cortex enables us to control our attention. So if, you, if you're right now, if you want like, oh, I wonder what Tom has texted me right now. But using prefrontal cortex, you can say, no, now it's not the time to check my messages. I'll check it during the break. Now I have to listen to Gabia speaking. Because if, if I don't, she will get me dance again. <laughs> and also, like, to, to have a willpower to resist temptations, we need prefrontal cortex. Unfortunately, when we drink alcohol, prefrontal cortex activity is compromised. So our willpower is reduced and our, our executive functions are also compromised. But the worst thing is that uh, also actually lack of sleep has the same effect. It reduces activity of prefrontal cortex and, and uh, we don't have as good willpower, we don't have as good rational uh, troubleshooting. But the worst thing is that we don't realize that we don't have, so we, we're basically dumb, but we don't realize we are dumb in that time. Um, and and uh, prefrontal cortex is crucial for personality traits, uh, for being individual, for, for having your own individual values, individual things that motivate you. And, when, uh, and that's quite commonly, uh, you know, I've seen with some of my clients who have been depressed. I don't work with clinical cases, but, but some people, you know, if, if you're in the job you absolutely hate, it's almost guaranteed that you will get depressed to some extent. They say, like, I'm no longer the person I used to be. I don't even know who I am anymore. 
And that's because the prefrontal cortex has been chronically suppressed to some extent. So they can't access that part which is truly them, which holds the individual values, individual character traits of, of that person. And of course, when they, when they get in a better state, that comes back. But it's quite, it's sometimes, you know, really disconcerting for people, feeling that they are lost and they are no longer the person they used to be. So when we are exhausted, or if we are stressed, or if we're in a really, really bad place emotionally, uh, we don't have enough energy to provide our prefrontal cortex with energy. So, so in that state, our brain prioritizes, in fact, our brain always prioritizes lizard brain. If there is any energy left, it gives to the mammal brain. And only if there is any left, it gives to the neocortex or human brain. So if you are too exhausted, the human brain functions wouldn't be the priority for your brain. It would just take care of your vital roles and also it would just push you to act in the same old way. So if we want to be productive and sharp, we really need to take a very good care of the brain recovery and giving enough time for neocortex to relax. And we need to be selective of what things we use, we use our neocortex to. Because when we, when, we are, when we don't have enough energy for neocortex, we can't make the best decisions. We can't change the habits and we can't truly understand other people. So for example, when my husband, my husband is a chiropractor and he, he sees about 20 patients each day. So when he comes back home after, after work, and if I start sharing my problems with him, he would be in no state to understand what, what I'm going through. But if I give him a couple hours to recover and relax, have some food and replenish, and then share with him, he would be able to engage human brain at that stage. So we need to both be mindful of our own brain activity and of other people's states of brain. Uh, and we have actually with my husband, we have that, you know, like if one of us is really like tired or stressed or feeling in a bad state, we say, I'm in mammal brain dominant thinking right now. <laughs> it helps. And he's like, Gabby, why are you being so irrational? I'm in mammal brain dominant thinking. Let's talk in an hour. So first tip, if you want your brain to function best and if you really want to get things done, uh, you, you really need to take care, or we all really need to take care of the, re uh, of the recovery time of the brain. So one tip, take regular breaks. How frequent? At least every hour and a half. After an hour and a half of productive work, uh, you need to take a 10-15 minutes break. And as the day goes on, so if, for example, when I was working on my PhD thesis now, now quite a few years ago, um, I would work for 45 minutes, take a break, another 45 minutes, take a break, another 45 So in fact, if it's a really challenging task, or if the task you don't really want to do, so it causes you stress, you need to take breaks more frequently. If that's a task you absolutely love to do, you might not need the breaks as often. So it's, it's a bit subjective. And the second thing, we need to get less busy. We need to really become more selective what things we use our prefrontal cortex for. And one of the, uh, one of the, uh, the tips, actually I have two tips. Raise your hands if you would like to know, get to know how to get less busy. So one of the, actually the most helpful tips I created for myself one day is changing the way I write, I do my to-do lists. In fact, do you guys still do to-do lists, like really long to-do lists, extensive? In fact, I ask myself every morning, what is the most important thing for me to get done today? And I write just one thing on my to-do list, that's it. And only when I got this thing done, 
Then I can ask, what's the second most important thing for me to get done today? Instead of writing, because what happens when we write a really long list, your human brain will be constantly thinking and weighing against, shall I do this or that? There's benefits of doing this, but then there is, maybe this one is more urgent and so on and so forth. So your mind can't rest and it constantly keeps processing and that drains the power or, or that drains the energy. So if you ask, what's the most important thing for me to get done today? So for example, last week for me, the most important thing to get done was to get the slides ready. That's it, all the emails and other things could wait. I had to get the slides for the presentation. And in your work as well, uh, what's the most important thing to get done today? And start with that. Because you're not guaranteed that you will have prefrontal cortex energy to do it later. And the second tip is so-called Pareto principle. So, so Wilfredo Pareto was a biologist and, and he was really interested. He was a very inquisitive man. And, and he noticed that in his um, crops, usually it was 20% of plants that produced about 80% of whole harvest. So 20% of apple trees produced 80% of whole, you know, a harvest of apples, 20% of peas produced 80% of, of, of harvest. So what he realized, if he only focused keeping those 20% of plants in a good shape, he can get most of, most of uh, harvest. And in some cases, it's actually the balance is even more skewed, that 10% of whole plants can produce 90% of outcomes. And there is, we can see, we see that principle at all levels. So for example, 10% of composers created 90% of all the music, or actually I think the number is 5%, 90, 95%, uh, and things like that. So, so what you need to really um, go through your day and look, which of the tasks I do produce the best results? And in my experiments, when I was doing experiments on, on the um, memory centers of the brain, I really sat down because my experiments were really long, and when I'm exhausted, I suffer with migraines. And I was to a point that I was getting a migraine every single day. And the doctor was like, I can't give you as much sumatriptan because you know, you'll, you, you, you'll get secondary migraines from medication overuse. So I was really struggling. And I, and I sat down and I was like, okay, how can I change that instead of 12 hours, my experiments become a bit more manageable? So I really looked at which part of the experiment produced most results. Because I was recording from neurons and doing all sorts of like, uh, you know, quite sci-fi, Experience and I realized that within first two hours, when I already start recording from neurons, I guess I get all the data I've ever got. And other three hours are wasted. I never ever got any recording. So I was like, how about I reduce it by three hours? So instead of 13 hours, now I have 10 hours, which is a bit more manageable. Then I also got a student to help me out with experiments so I could actually go for lunch and have a lunch break and go outside for a walk and, you know, just have a bit, a bit more manageable schedule with experiments. And that made a huge difference, both in terms of getting results, because then I could, I could get more experiments done, uh, and also in kind of enjoying the experiments much more. Another thing which really drains our energy is multitasking. And in fact, in the brain, there is no such thing as multitasking. Majority of people, which is over 90% of people, can't multitask, which means that actually we have so-called the limits of our working memory. So working memory is, 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 is the function of, of your neocortex, which enable you to really think about concepts relevant to what you're trying to achieve. 
So if you're, if you're trying to book the tickets, you need to think about what dates you're available, how much you're willing to spend for the ticket, uh, where do you want to fly from, and, and so on and so forth. So you bring that all the information to your working memory, and if somebody calls you at that time, you answer the phone, you speak on the phone, and all, that all the time you use to really think through those things gets a bit wasted because it takes, quite, um, it takes a bit of time to switch between those tasks. It's not much, it's actually milliseconds, so less than a second. But if we do it all the time, if we keep switching attention all the time, it adds up to quite a substantial number. And we have a kind of a, a, a limit of the so-called cognitive load, a limit of how many things we can think about at the same time, which is about four to five things. So you can't physically think about all the information relevant for the flight and all the information relevant for that phone conversation at the same time. It's just physically not possible. It's, it, we get the impression that it's possible because we can switch quite quickly and we keep on micro-switching all the time when we are multitasking. But unfortunately, we keep on losing quite a lot of time. And in this graph, it's actually depicted how much time we lose. So on this axis, we see number of projects, one to five, and here is how much time we spend working on that task in blue. And in red is the time we waste for just switching. So imagine if you're working, if you just work on one project, 100% of your time is dedicated to working on that task. However, if you have two things you're working on, so imagine you're doing um, your accounts in Excel spreadsheet and you're creating the slides for the talk. And if you're switching between those tasks all the time and keep thinking about both things, you're actually only spending 40% per each task and 20% on switching. And things get actually significantly worse with the increased number of projects you think about. So in fact, multitasking makes us waste quite a lot of time. And if you imagine if you're juggling five things, then you're wasting about 70% of the time. So if you're working for 10 hours, you actually get, you know, um, you waste at least seven, seven and a half hours a day. So it's, it's really worth actually, you know, thinking through. And, and people, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I'm a woman, I could multitask better. In fact, there is some research showing that actually that's not true. Women are as bad at multitasking as men. Um, <laughs> and if, interestingly, interestingly, if women are, only, are given the tasks, like uh, they did experiments with crosswords, and they, they, they could choose either to multitask or just do one crossword and then finish that and do another one. If they're given the choice and if they don't have pressure, if they don't have stress, we choose to actually single focus rather than multitask. So in fact, it's, you know, there is like, we could discuss for hours why, why women tend to multitask, but the summary is that women are not good at multitasking either. And if you think you're good at multitasking, I can assure you, you're not. <laughs> and the second, th second reason why we shouldn't multitask, oh, actually third reason, so one, we waste energy of our prefrontal cortex, second, we waste time, and third, we are much more likely to do mistakes. And here is, is, is quite a, they did quite a trivial task where people were, had to um, write, do, they do the either calculations with numbers or write a long text, long essay, and they counted how many mistakes they made uh, in numerical and in the letter tasks uh, when they were either focusing on one or switching between those two. And people who actually focused on one task 
made three times less mistakes. And the ones who switched between the tasks, it's either, even if, if they were writing or doing the number, the difference was quite similar. So on this side is numerical manipulations, and on this side is like letter manipulations. So basically when they were writing a text on this task, when they were doing calculations. So we're much more likely to make mistakes and to, to waste time. So what could be the solution? And in fact, this thing made a big, big difference in my, my own performance, um, especially when I had multiple pressing deadlines to achieve. And in my, um, it helped quite a lot for my clients as well. Uh, it's so-called Pomodoro technique. It's like the simplest technique I've ever encountered, but it's really powerful. So in this technique, we actually really make a conscious choice when we're gonna do what. And we're not allowed to do anything else. You can choose how long. So for example, this, this um, you might not be able to see the letters very well, but basically you write down what specifically you want to get done and break it down in small chunks. So for example, um, you write down, okay, I need to do research on the psychology of prefrontal cortex. I need to do research on multitasking. And you kind of write down, uh, you know, step by step, small achievable goals. And each of them has to be, you, you should be able to do them in about 20 to 30 minutes. So you need to really break it down into small bits. Then you set your timer for whatever time you want to, but it's advisable to start with 25 minutes. If you're really, really multitasking um, junkie, set it to five minutes to start with. And for those minutes, you can only do that task. You can't do anything else. So imagine you say, I need to read this scientific paper. That's it. You can't browse. You can't look at other papers. You can't check your emails. You download that and you, for 25 minutes or five minutes, whatever, whatever the case might be, you only can read that. Once the timer is up, you, you, then you have a break, five to 10 minutes break, where you can do anything you like. You can, you know, you can watch Netflix. You can play a silly game on your phone. You can make yourself coffee. You can check emails. It's completely unstructured. Do as you please. Again, after the break is over, you do another Pomodoro, another 25 minutes focusing on the task. So you continue with the article if you're reading an article, or you continue with writing if you're writing. And I use this technique quite a lot working on my book now. Um, this is, and I said I kind of worked up to, to be able to do 45 minutes of really productive work. Then I do 15 minute break where I, you know, make myself coffee, maybe have a snack, maybe go outside into the yard for a little bit or call my husband to check that our, you know, our daughter is fine. We have a, a year and a half one, so now he's and dad, dad's, dad's duties. And, um, and then after the break is over, I do another 45 minutes. And even if you do just two Pomodoros a day, you're training your brain how to single focus and how to switch off the distractions. So the most useful thing of that exercise is not, not even getting the task done, but actually training back your brain because your attention networks are plastic. It's training back for them for the single focus mode to be stronger and stronger and stronger over time. So the second tip that actually uh, multitasking doesn't work. We can't effectively multitask. We waste, waste time. We do more mistakes and we waste energy. So in fact, we need to train the brain to become single focus as needed. And we need to separate, okay, this is time for me to work, this is time for me to rest. But a lot of times we have quite unrealistic expectations on our prefrontal cortex, say, I'll, I'll work for eight hours and then I'll rest. It doesn't work that way. It has to be under, under an hour of productive work, 
before you, you, you need a break. And regularly practicing Pomodoro technique will help you to really, you know, focus much, much better. Um, what else could help us with our attention? So before I can answer that question, we actually really need to look at what, are, what is attention in the brain. So in the brain, attention is created by two different brain networks. One is called the dorsal attention system, uh, which basically helps you to pursue your goals. So if you think, okay, I'm sitting in a busy cafe, I need to book a flight. So the, the dorsal attention system keeps reminding you, book the flight because the prices will go up or there won't be tickets available anymore. Stimuli-driven system or ventral attention system keeps track on everything that's going on around you, both externally and actually internally, on your inner mind chat, chatter as well. So, so when, if you're sitting in the cafe, the, the ventral attention system is constantly, oh, what is he doing? What is she doing there? And keep, keep constantly getting distracted. Now, those two systems are really, really important for us because if you imagine when we lived back in a much more natural way of living, and if you went hunting, you need the dorsal attention system to focus that, you know, you, you need to go and hunt an animal to bring back. But also stimuli-driven system kept you safe because you need to keep track of what's going on around you to ensure that you're not hunted yourself. Uh, so those two systems need, need, need to coexist. However, they compete with one another. And, and they, keep, they keep suppressing one another. And we need that really dynamic interplay between them in order to, to achieve things and in order to ensure that we kind of, you know, are connected with the environment. So there's different ways we could, we could train those. And this is the picture, by the way, uh, where in the brain those systems are. In blue is a dorsal attention system and, and, and in yellow there, ventral attention system. And they kind of, they are connected with each other so they can suppress each other. So one of the best ways to train those systems, it depends, again, what things you need to train, what things you're bad at. Uh, so there are different kind of types of meditations which can help you to train those systems. By the way, there is a really, really interesting, uh, quite a nice article um, published in 2014 by, by the monk which became a neuroscientist, Mathieu Ricard. He written really quite a lovely article about the mind of the meditator. When he, when he explains in really quite accessible, nice manner what actually happens when we are meditating, what the benefits it has. Uh, since 2014, there's been quite a few, you know, other, other researchers confir confirming his findings, but, you know, there hasn't been um, that, that many more conceptual breakthroughs. Sorry? Mm, very healing, exactly. So, so there is two, two different kinds of meditation. One could help you to, to train your dorsal attention system, which is focusing on the task, and the other could help you to train your ventral attention system. Depends on, on, on what, what things you need to train. So, so focused attention meditation is where you really, for a certain period of time, you focus on only one thing, and that could be, for example, breathing. So if I say, like, you know, you breathe in, or let's do that now, actually, let's try. I'll, I'll illustrate. We have a couple of minutes. So now breathe in and feel the temperature of the air. Just only focus on the breathing. Hold it and breathe out. And just observe what your belly is doing when you're breathing. Again, breathe in. Observe it. Breathe out. And so this is just very simple basic illustration that 
once you're focusing on your breathing, at that time you don't think about other things. And you might not notice what's going on around you. Breathing is just a very simple thing, but you can focus that on other things. You can focus on your mental processes, on what thoughts come through in, into your mind. You can process, focus fully on what you're trying to achieve with your task. So, so you, you, that kind of could, 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 could work for any, anything. Now, mindfulness meditation practices is when you fully, fully experience what's around you. So if I told you now, now tr look around and try to notice as many faces as you can. Look around now. Notice as many faces as you can. It's quite a, quite a beautiful room, isn't it? I love people. Um, I love people's faces. So, so when we do that, we're switching on our mindfulness attention, like it's mindfulness type of meditation, but it's, it's, uh, it's not a meditation in the sense that when you're just looking around, but in that way, we, we're giving a we, we're allowing our uh, ventral attention system to notice as much as possible. And the people who are really struggle to zoom out, who have really very single focus, who get stuck in the task, need to, need to practice that regularly. If you're really, if at the end of the day, you've been working hard and you can't stop thinking about it, and it's burning you out and you're constantly, oh, I just want to stop thinking about it, but I can't. You need to practice mindfulness meditation to, to help that. But if you feel like your brain is really scattered and, and you can't think about one thing, it's almost like it's called diffused awareness. And it's your brain is all over the place. You need to actually practice focused attention meditation. And... And, and both attention practices, this, this research was done on mindfulness meditation, they have multiple benefits. So one of the benefits is that um, this, these are the different brain centers and how the activity changes after eight, only eight weeks of, of, of regular mindfulness meditation twice a day. Um, and our prefrontal cortex becomes more active. It means that actually it gets enough time to replenish that it can function better. But most importantly, our amygdala, um, which is there in, in uh, green, I think, um, in green, uh, it gets more calm. It's no longer having so much negative mind chat. It's no longer, you know, triggering negative emotions in the same way. So your brain, so overthinking usually causes really quite a negative, negative state. But if we practice mindfulness meditation or focused attention meditation, our brain becomes more calm and more selective what thoughts it kind of engages with. So it's a bit like training a puppy, you know, if the puppy is well trained and it gets, or in fact, it's a bit like dealing with a small child. If you allow your child to do whatever they want to, they wouldn't nap, they wouldn't eat proper food, they would only want to eat chocolate, and they would feel really, really moody, right? But if I say with, with our daughter, for example, Amelia, I was like, okay, you've been playing for a bit, now it's time for your nap. She might not like it. They would say, no. It's time for your nap, we'll play afterwards. And after she had a nap, she's in much, much better mood. The same things apply for our mind. We need to train our mind. And we need to say, now it's time for you to focus on this. Now it's time for you to relax. Time to focus on this, time to relax. And when we have really clear boundaries between those two modes, our brain can function best because it has enough time to relax. Um, in addition to that, when we regularly practice taking breaks, exercising, and meditation, uh, our brain plasticity is increased. 
Now, there isn't yet clear understanding on why that happens, but one of the uh, ideas is that when we do that, our stress levels are reduced. And stress is one of the worst things for our brain plasticity. So in fact, when the cortisol levels are lower, brain plasticity can get back to the natural state and is no longer suppressed. And hence, we can, we can learn better. So the third tip before we take a break is that regular meditation and in general taking regular breaks and training your brain to switch off um, changes the activity in your brain and switches off the amygdala, that you know, brain area which constantly is nagging and noticing negative things and make your prefrontal cortex to function better when you're actually doing the task. And it can even actually change the brain structures via the brain, brain plasticity.